In those early days when we all were getting to know each other, the three of us used to talk for hours over cups of tea, sometimes long into the night. And of course I was dazzled. I'd never met anyone like Howard in my life. He would talk about all these different people and events, and he would tell us his ideas, and I'd sit there amazed. Oh, I turned the volume on the radio to loud. <laughs> I didn't want to miss a single word. <laughs> Did you know that morality was Eddie's favorite subject? Oh, yes, he loves to talk about it. He finds it so enjoyable. You know, morality for Eddie is like, what? Like, what? You know, it's like some terribly worthy old urn. Some terribly worthy old urn that's wrapped up in some towels in his back closet. Well, it's got a few chips in it, one has to admit, and it's rather ugly, really, if you bother to look at it, and it's too heavy to lift, and in its style, of course, it's totally out of keeping with everything else in the house. So, well, you know, it can't be used. It has no function in Eddie's life at all. But ten times a day he has to exclaim, Oh, yes, that urn! It's my great possession! My greatest treasure! Oh, now, Howard, really? That's... Now, use it for Tom, of course. Morality is so wonderful because it enables him to have a delightful sense of superiority. You know, Tom is really indifferent to other human beings. You could be dying in agony in front of his eyes, and it wouldn't bother Tom the slightest bit. But he loves morality because it means he can say, these other people were terrible, you know. What they did was wrong. They were inferior, contemptible. I, on the other hand, did what was right, you see, and I'm quite superior. Father's best piece of prose, I've always thought, was his essay called The Enemy. You know, no one actually can write like that if they're over 25 for whatever reason. And he most certainly never could have. It was all so bluntly personal. The way he wrote about his parents, the house, the corridors, the statues, the sheer lustfulness with which he described the young woman whom he'd met in the park, the rather wild humor in his description of the process of bringing her through the back door of his father's house in the middle of the night, and then, and then the wonderful passage in which he slowly realizes who and what that young woman actually was. In the end, well, the hours he spent with her that night would change his life. Occasionally in those days, I'd try to toss a thought or two into the conversation myself. But really, Howard, when you speak of Tom, 
Don't you think Tom was a bit superior? I mean, he did do some courageous things at certain crucial moments, you know, in comparison to someone like Martin. Oh, really? In comparison to someone like Martin? Do you think? Well, what Martin did was very cowardly. Tom spoke out, and Martin just kept quiet and tried to protect himself. But, you see, there... You're judging another human being, aren't you, Jack? Well, yes. That's I'm... the thing that doesn't make sense to me, because you're saying, in effect, you're saying, in effect, that Tom behaved the way he should have behaved, but Martin didn't. Martin ought to have behaved differently from the way he did behave. So you're implying what? that you think you'd have behaved differently if you had been Martin? No, I, I don't say I would have. I mean, maybe I would have. I don't know, but that's not the point. It isn't? No, I... What he really means is that... I he... mean, I'm simply saying that Martin might have acted in a better way. But you see, there's where I become incredibly confused. Because, I mean, if you were Martin or if uh, someone were Martin, and they had had Martin's life and Martin's experiences, then why wouldn't they perceive the whole situation around them in exactly the way that Martin did and act accordingly? And in that case, what's the point of condemning Martin? Because he couldn't help being what he was. And since he was what he was, he saw things the way he saw them, and he did what he did. I mean, you're putting your energy into praising people or blaming people and saying who is better and worse, and meanwhile, your attention is entirely turned away from the human suffering that is going on all around you and from the extremely difficult, hard-to-answer question of what's bringing it about. I mean, rather than condemning Martin or whomever, wouldn't it be more valuable to try to understand various things? For example, to understand what circumstances in the world or in a person's life might lead them to behave the way Martin behaved? What are the circumstances which come up in the world and lead to that? And how do they come up? I mean, all the judging, all the condemning, who's superior, who's inferior, I was right, and so on are not terribly helpful to all the people who might actually be falling victim to every sort of horror while you're taking the time to debate these things. I've always loved the way Father wrote in that essay about the poor people of our country and the ones like this unusual young woman who rise up to lead them that night, she told Father so many things. How the rebels managed to avoid the government spies. What they did if one of them got sick. How, at night, they would walk very quietly into different towns, meet people who they found wandering in the streets or in parks or sitting in all-night cafes, talk with them, and share stories about their lives. As happened to many before him, love and desire brought him to new ideas, a new understanding. Father describes 
in his essay the very moments in which erotic attraction gently wove in his heart a bond of sympathy with the poor people of our country, which strangely, in fact, turned out never to weaken. And I love the way he described the young woman as she sat there perched awkwardly on his parent's sofa, drinking her tea. Drinking her tea. From my grandmother's cup. my grandmother's cup. Yellow. Yellow with flowers. With flowers. Her hands nicked in a hundred places. She answered my questions politely, quietly, but even speaking softly, her voice was hard, like wire, wire twisting carefully around the simple words she spoke. How could someone like me even begin to imagine the life she lived? No safety, no hope, no shelter, no trees, a completely flat landscape going on forever, running from the light, but the light was everywhere. When it rained, they were beaten into the ground. They had nowhere to go, lying in the mud, We've been wandering like this for, actually, years, she said. Her beautiful skin, even her face, burned, scratched, like the fields she'd slept in. For whatever reason, he was born that way. He had an ability that was unusual for someone from that background. He could read the face of anyone, effortlessly read it, and see the intelligence in it. So even as a young man, he'd always wondered why were certain people, the ones not from his background, systematically made to live in dirt and kept so far away from the songs of Schubert. After she left, alone in my bedroom, lying on the floor, I frightened myself by how much I cried. So this was the enemy. And all I wanted in the world was to help her. I said out loud, I'll do anything, anything. But as soon as the words were out of my mouth, I was trembling with fear, like the blind girl in the fairy tale. I suppose you might think I was fascinated by Howard's writing, that I'd always been some sort of admirer of Howard. That's just not the way it was at all. You know, I was a confused young man. I was wandering around some vaguely expensive clothing store one afternoon with a group of people. I was trying to buy a pair of pajamas. And along came Judy, 
also shopping, and someone introduced us, and that thing happened. You know, where people who use that rather terrifying expression, their eyes locked. <laughs> and then Judy left, but uh, I kept having this really vivid fantasy that she and I were both trying on pajamas and that I'd somehow wandered by mistake into her little booth. And then a few weeks later, I ran into her again, late at night by the lake in the park, in that little alley of trees where they used to hang those enormous paper lanterns. And we kept on running into each other over the next few months until finally one night she brought me over to the house and I met Howard. I met him, we talked, we got along fine. But my God, I was never tempted for a single minute to become a disciple of Howard. I was an observer at best. Even on a very good day, a very good day, a vague hanger-on was the most I ever would have called myself if I would have called myself anything. The whole business of living at the whim of another human being. Watching out, oh, so carefully for the moods, the sensitivities on the great man's face. Well, that was terribly appealing to all those delicate, melting, idealistic young girls who were always hanging around, or to the serious young men in their dark overcoats, but God knows not to me. I mean, <laughs> of course he was remarkable. Who would have denied it? It was remarkable simply to make all the choices he made to dress in blues and greens and not reds or grays to know about the sumerians but not about the assyrians sure it was great although if you actually thought about it it was all sort of arbitrary really in a way why blues rather than reds you see i mean there was no answer I would say to myself every day, you know, oh, oh, he's accomplished so much, and I've accomplished nothing, so I really don't deserve to lick his boots. But I couldn't help it. It did bother me that all those wonderful choices that sort of made up the very fabric of Howard were at their foundation, really sort of mindless. But of course I envied him. <laughs> what are you talking about? I envied the whole gang of them, all the old unbearables. Bob, Arthur, the whole crowd. And Howard, come on. The possibility of not envying Howard didn't even arise. Didn't even arise. Forget his writing. I envied him simply because of the way he could read. It was so easy, so casual. The way I might have picked up an article about the scandalous love affairs of the former chief of police, he would pick up a book of poems by John Donne. I mean, I was clever enough to know that John Donne was offering something that was awfully enjoyable. I just wasn't clever enough to actually enjoy it.
I devoted my life to it, I suppose you could say, but I couldn't get near to the great writers. Day after day and year after year, I read them and read them, but they always seemed remote. I didn't want them to. They just did. I was kept out of it all, kept away. Howard, on the other hand, was let right in. Come in, they said. Here we are. Come talk. Come sit with us. We're right here. Howard couldn't even comprehend what the problem was for the rest of us poor mortals. <laughs> How could he, you see? But do you know, I always felt I was on the brink of understanding. I felt I could have learned. I was ready to learn. I would have humbled myself to any degree in order to learn, as a matter of fact. But he wouldn't teach me. None of them would. Howard, Judy, Bob, Arthur, the readers of poetry. Jack wasn't actually a bad fellow, you know. I just found him a little bit vague at times. A little bit vague. A little bit lazy. Well, you know, he was lazy. In fact, actually, he was so lazy that his favorite foods, <laughs> I'm not making this up because I observed it quite carefully, were soup, risotto, mashed potatoes, and ice cream. I'm not exaggerating. God, I enjoyed watching Howard's reactions when Judy and I had just met and I was just starting to come over to the house. You know, the thought of Judy and me being alone together was so horrifying to Howard that he would actually sort of follow us around from room to room without knowing he was doing it. I mean, literally, for hours at a time, he'd be creeping and crawling around us like some strange animal, his face frozen into this hideous little smile. At that time, I happened to be living just a few streets away. I had a tiny apartment in one of those famous, awful, cylindrical high-rises, and fairly often, Judy and I would sort of spend the evening in my falling-apart bed with a bottle or two of something or other, and then we'd be hungry. And as I never had any food at my place, we'd get up, throw on a few clothes, and sneak very quietly into Howard's house to raid the refrigerator. Judy's face would be bright red, and she'd constantly be bursting out into that weird, hysterical laugh she used to have then, and half-heartedly trying to muffle it. And when Howard would appear, in his slippers, with his special little smile, you could tell he found our whole manner just crassly obscene. <laughs> of course, the comical part was that I happened to know, and Howard didn't, that I wasn't actually a good lover at all. God, no, I, I was really awful. <laughs> I had no control over my own responses. 
I used to remind myself of my college friend Jorge, who had this pet lemur which he kept on a leash and which was always either leaping up at people unexpectedly or else lying down in some public place and refusing to budge. And I always used to think about Jorge's apologetic expressions and gestures. In any case, women had always told me, you know, you're not sensitive, you're very clumsy. The way you approach a woman's body is simply wrong. One woman had said, you know, wrestling is really not the right model. Try something else. But Judy knew absolutely nothing about sex. So she didn't mind. It all seemed great. Needless to say, I never pointed out to her, Christ, you know, if you like me, you should try a man who can really do this. She was terribly happy. So we really spent years basically almost living there in Howard's house, and it wasn't that bad, but then... Things got so much nicer when we finally moved to our own little apartment, entirely on the other side of town from Howard. We moved in in April, and we had a little window, and from the tree outside, these leaves grew into the window in the most voluptuous, irresistible, sexual way. And Judy and I grew sort of intertwined getting up each morning with just the two of us. It was a wonderful time. Well, do I need to tell you? It was a short interval. Good Lord, let's try to be realistic. It wasn't too long before we had to move back to Howard's house. Howard, after all, was in very poor health. I mean, he was much too sick. He was much too ill. He couldn't live by himself without Judy and me in the next room. And what possible value could our happiness have in comparison to how seriously ill he was? He was so ill. The trouble was that no one could ever say in just what way he was ill. What was wrong with him exactly? He certainly had some awfully good days for someone who was so ill. For example, those who saw him on the day when he carried the logs from the garage to the house would probably be unlikely ever to forget it. Up and down the driveway, up and down the driveway, sweat pouring off in sheets from his face, refusing rudely all our offers to help him, his eyes shining yellow like the eyes of a wolf. So during all those years, the only times I could ever really pull Judy away from Howard were when we'd go on a trip, when we'd go to one of those awful places Judy loved. One of those miserable places, tropical nightmare zones. And those trips were so nice, really. 
because no matter how sad or gloomy Judy might have seemed before we left, well, you know, introduce her to a shepherd or a couple of sheep, and she'd perk right up. But the things that Father had said in his 20s could not be unsaid. They didn't disappear. Their consequences, of course, could be put off, suspended, but not forever. Our beloved rulers were naturally reluctant to impose any sort of harsh discipline on the wayward son of one of their own. But that didn't mean they didn't all read that little volume of essays whose orange binding we knew so well, or that they ever forgot it. No one did. Everyone knew that you couldn't just write a book like that and get away with it. And the fact was that there were certain officials in the government who found Father to be an entirely harmful and disloyal individual who deserved no protection of any kind. And who knew how important those particular officials might become one day? Father was leading a very quiet life in our little house, and his name was rarely mentioned in public. But people still knew that his story might not quite be over yet. It was a bit like an unresolved chord in music, if you know what I mean. And so people were often quite nervous around Father. Some people were afraid to meet him. You could see the tension filling their faces. And there were others who saw him on a daily basis, but the anxiety they felt somehow didn't diminish or even increased. And, of course, I'm thinking of Joan more than anyone, really. You know, I always liked Joan the best of Father's friends. The rodent, as we called her, because she was thin and gray. Or, as Father once said, she was like a cloth you might use to polish silver with. I loved Joan, but she was a little weak, loud and funny and wild when she played with us children. My friends always begged her to join our games. She was quiet with the grown-ups. Father meant everything to her, but one day she lost her nerve. I remember his face as he told me about it. Joan's going away, he said. She went to live in a small suburb down by the water and never came back. You've been listening to The Designated Mourner by Wallace Shawn. I'm Andre Gregory, and I directed the production. The actors were Wallace Shawn as Jack, Deborah Eisenberg as Judy, and Larry Pine as Howard. Bruce Odland was the engineer, composer, designer, editor, and podcast director. Mastering was by Mark Fuller. 
The original producers were Celeste Barthaus and Scott Rudin. Jennifer Tipton was the co-creator. These podcasts were produced by Mac Rogers and Sean Williams of Gideon Productions. <laughs>